Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Listen for the gospel of God. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking back at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their own life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, help us to hear your word that you have for us this morning. If what I have to say sparks something of you in those who hear it, may they pay attention. If what I say is against something from you, may people ignore it. May your word be heard this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The writers for the 2005 movie Walk the Line, I think it was 2005, about the life of Johnny Cash, included a scene that I'm pretty sure didn't happen the way that, it said, that they said it happened, but it was, it was really powerful and it stuck with me for years. So it's at the beginning of Johnny Cash's musical career and He's, he's finally convinced a recording studio owner to hear him out, to give him a shot. And he goes in and he plays a song uh, called, oh, what is that song? Oh, it doesn't have the title of it in here. Um, so he, he's, he plays this song and Sam Phillips interrupts him and says, are you serious? Is... is is that the song, if you, it, I'm going to quote, if you was hit by a truck and was lying out there in that gutter dying and you had to sign to sing one song, huh? One song people would remember before your dirt. One song that would let God know how you felt about your time here on earth. One song that sung you up. You're telling me that's the song you'd sing? That same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within and how it's real and you're going to shout it? Or would you sing something different, something real, something you felt? Because I'm telling you right now, that's the kind of song people want to hear. That's the kind of song that truly saves people. It ain't got nothing to do with believing in God, Mr. Cash. It has to do with believing in yourself. I found out last week that the Jimmy Davis tune he was singing actually did make it onto the final record. Um... I'm more of a Walk the Line fan than a Johnny Cash fan, unfortunately. Uh, and that there was a whole lot more to him getting his first record deal than that. But 
but that scene has stuck with me over the years. It's almost been kind of a North Star, and I, I played it for session a couple of years ago. You probably remember. Um, but in early 2022, I was starting to have some problems with preaching and starting to feel a little discouraged. Uh, right before I left for the Credo Conference put on by the Presbyterian Church's Board of Pensions, um, I wrote a journal entry that I called, In Which I Feel Like a Liar. Uh, and I got to thinking about that scene from Walk the Line because I had been self-censoring pretty hard. I'd been trying not to talk about politics or inclusion or racism or anything that might rub somebody the wrong way. Um, you know, and I'm not talking like, this is why you should vote for this political candidate. Like, we're not talking about that. Uh, but it was just regularly censoring myself. And, you know, I, I would include some content of it that, that might offend someone. And then when I got to that part of the sermon, I would just skip that and not do that part because it might offend somebody. And, and I started to feel like since I was cutting out the sermons or parts of sermons that I thought might people uncomfortable, I could uh, stick to more vanilla stuff that, that wasn't going to offend anybody. But I was practicing say, silencing, saying what I really believed. And I'd gotten so good at it, I wasn't I was starting to wonder if I even had a voice of my own left to preach with. Since I'd practiced so hard not saying those things, I felt like I was losing my ability to actually say anything. I wondered in that moment if Sam Phillips had asked me, is that the sermon you'd preach? I would go, I don't know, and I don't know if I've got any sermons that feel that way to me. Jesus says in the passage that we just read, Mark 8, 36, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's a little bit the old King James there. That's how I memorized it, I think. Um, and I don't know if you noticed, but the passage that we read kind of jumps around a little bit. Um, the German theologian Rudolf Boltmann believed that Mark had sort of hammered together a whole bunch of parts that sort of sounded close to each other. Based on my class on the Gospel of Mark, that's probably how Mark works. Uh, Mark starts with a topic and he goes, oh, and that reminds me of this, which reminds me of this, which reminds me of this. Uh, he's not doing it in order. The early church fathers were pretty clear on, Mark wrote all the same things, but not in order. <laughs> so, so this piece is kind of, it can stand by itself. Um, but when I was growing up, this passage was always and only and ever interpreted to be about hell. The, the line was, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? That is, you go to hell. What if, what if you get rich and you go to hell? What if you can be however successful you want, but if you die and your soul goes to hell, that's worth nothing. But that's not where this saying started. The uh, New Revised Standard Version, which we read from this morning, says, what will it profit them to gain their whole world and forfeit their life? Um, it kind of gets rid of the gendered concept of um, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world because it's, it's kind of universally intended here. 
Uh, but uh, one of my commentaries said that this kind of wisdom statement made a lot of sense without needing to be connected to a sense of life after death, you know? Um, it's, it's, cl it's close to the story of the rich man who has lots of food and lots of his fields are producing, and he goes, ah, I've got all of this extra food. What am I going to do? I know I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and he tears them down, builds them, and that night as he's celebrating and going, I've got lots of stuff, lots of goods laid up for many years to come, a voice comes to him from God saying, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. This is the day that you die. So it, it, it kind of connects to that. It connects to that, and um, you, you can see this uh, played out again in a story by Leo Tolstoy, um, Russian author. I mean, everybody knows who Leo Tolstoy is, right? Uh, he wrote a story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? Have you heard of this one? Yeah. Uh, for, for, for the rest of you who haven't heard it, um, it's a story about a peasant named, I believe it's Pahom. And he, he wants more land, and he finds um, this, I believe it's an indigenous group, is that right? Or a group of people who's, who's willing to sell him all the land that he can walk around in a day for 1,000 rupees. And he says, well, that sounds like a great deal. And he walks around and he gets pretty far and he goes, okay, it's time to turn. He turns and makes it eventually, and he's starting to see the sun setting and he's, he's got to hurry, got to go a little faster. And he gets to the end, he's so worn out, he has a heart attack and dies on the spot. <laughs> and the answer to the question, how much land does a man need, according to Tolstoy, ends up being six feet. <laughs> and that, that's one way of reading this line about what will it profit someone if they gain everything and lose their soul or their, lose their life is one way. Uh, the Greek word there is psuche. Um, it means life, yes, but that's also talking about the, the center of emotions, and a lot of other translations go with the word soul. Uh, one translation, the easy-to-read version, says, it's worth nothing for you to have the whole world if you yourself are lost, which I think is pretty nicely translated. But I don't think Jesus is talking about hell here. I, I think the point is well taken, yes, that... Um, it's no use getting everything and then dying. It's a common theme in Jesus' stories, like I said earlier. But the other thing is, psuche, yeah, that's what that means, but Jesus wasn't Greek. He would have spoken Aramaic. And I don't know Aramaic. The closest word I found to that in Hebrew is nefesh. Um, there, there is a general agreement that the ancient Jews didn't have as much of a concept of a soul like the ancient Greeks did, but uh, there's, there's still a sense of, of selfness, of something that's other than your body that might survive you. I got maybe a third of the way through the article on Brill before I had to call it quits. Uh, so unfortunately, you won't get all of that of information. I ran out of time to research. So... There I was at Credo, feeling like a liar and 
going, I don't think that this is going to work. And I, I talked to folks who talked about leadership. We sat through a bunch of conferences about, and, and this is gnawing at me, this feeling like I'm not telling the truth. And at the end of the week, they invited us to come up with a list of about four things that, uh, four, it was a rule of life, four things that you want to change about your life and specific strategies for how to do them, things that you're going to commit to doing every day, every week, every month, every year, whatever. Um, I had 12. <laughs> uh, they, they said, we, we need you to only have three or four because you're not going to be able to stick with more than that. And I was like, look, I need 12 because I am not going to make it on three or four. I I realized my life had gone so far sideways, I wasn't going to make it on three or four. I didn't quite do all 12, but... But um, one of the commitments that I made was to say something every month that I knew probably might offend somebody because it felt true. Like, because it was true to who I am as a person and as a preacher. I said, I'm going to take that chance once a month. I'm going to say something, and it might offend somebody, and I'm going to intentionally do it anyway. And that there was going to be something that felt authentic for me, something that felt like worship in spirit and in truth for me in every service from there on out. And, you know, I, I kind of moved away from that because after a year or so of practicing that, I realized that I was still offending people and I didn't need to, like, I could go back and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I said something that might, be offensive, that might have offended someone there. Again, not for the sake of offending people, but for the sake of this is something that is part of this sermon that I feel like I need to say. And I wouldn't say it because it might offend somebody but I'm going to say it anyway. That kind of thing. And I think, I think it helped. I think it helped me to be a better preacher. I got some feedback about sermons that risked offending people. Some people really liked those. And um, I published an article in the Herald Palladium that potentially might have offended some people. There was a woman who came and visited the church She's from out of town, but she came and visited the church because she read that article and she thought, this will do. We've had people come because of this. But, but more importantly than that, I've been able to continue being your pastor instead of burning out and feeling like I'm lying to you on Sunday mornings about who I am, what I believe. And I started to find my soul. The services have felt more alive and I've heard from some of you, I think, that they've been better. I want to wrap up with a quote from a uh, Parker Palmer. Uh, he's quoting actually the poet Rumi. I wanted to wrap it up with this one. He says, if you are here unfaithfully with us, you're causing terrible damage. Parker Palmer writes, if we are unfaithful to true self, we will extract a price from others. We'll make promises we cannot keep, build houses from flimsy stuff, conjure dreams that devolve into nightmares, and other people will suffer if we are unfaithful to true self. This is Lent. This is the uh, part of the church year where we try to let go of things that we're holding on to that we actually don't need. So if you are one of those folks who's holding on to 
inauthenticity, um, lying about who you are because it's easier to lie than to risk offending somebody, I'd invite you to let that go. Repent of trying to gain the whole world or <laughs> just trying to gain a moment of peace without offending someone and losing your soul. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have called us to be your people, not, not, not the same, not carbon copy clones of each other, but unique, different individuals, as it says in Romans 12, all called with different purposes. We pray that you will help us to accept who you've called us to be and stop trying to be who we think that other people might want us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.